When my wife and I and our family lived in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, back in the 1980s, we are only 12 miles from this location that about 20 years later would become infamous for a horrible tragedy. I'm referring to the Nickel Mines Amish one-room schoolhouse in Bart Township, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. When I would drive to seminary, I was driving almost right by that intersection, just a mile north of it. But in October 2006, a lone gunman went into this one-room schoolhouse and took hostage 10 young girls ages between ages 6 and 13. He shot eight of them. Five of them died. And then he committed suicide. He was a known individual to the Amish community, having made deliveries, truck deliveries, to the different farms in the area. How would you respond to a situation like that if it was your loved ones whose lives were taken? The Amish community offered forgiveness to the shooter and to the family. How did they show forgiveness? Well, that very day, the day of the shooting, a grandfather of one of the victims warned all of his family and relatives not to hate the killer. They would not speak badly about the shooter or even degrade his character. One Amish father said he had a mother and a wife and a soul, and now he's standing before a just God. At the funeral of the shooter, half of the people there were Amish. An Amish neighbor went to the Roberts family, that's the family of the shooter. He had a wife and children, and they extended forgiveness immediately to them. Another man held Robert's father in his arms, comforted him for up to an hour. And they also, the Amish also, set up a charitable fund to take care of the widow and his children. They explained that the Amish and their willingness to forgo vengeance does not undo the tragedy or pardon the wrong, but rather constitutes a first step toward a future that is hopeful. And Marie Roberts, the widow, wrote an open letter published in the newspaper of gratitude to the Amish community for providing healing that they so desperately needed. This was written about in USA Today in October of 2007, made into a book in that same year called Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy, and in 2010 made into a lifetime movie because it is so unlike us to extend unqualified and undeserved forgiveness. The emphasis on forgiveness and reconciliation was widely discussed in the national media, and many criticized the Amish for their complete forgiveness. They said it's a long process, and it's a difficult and painful process. It's not easy. It takes some months, maybe even years. At first, they extend, or at least they have the desire to extend forgiveness until finally they share forgiveness, some sooner than others, but they said none of this could happen except by the grace of God. And what you don't realize is that in the Amish community, you have quite a spectrum from those who believe that salvation is all by works to the opposite end, the beachy Amish that are very evangelical, like many Mennonites are, and hold to a gospel of grace and grace alone as their way to heaven.
It is unusual and goes against every one of our natural inclinations. Everything in us cries out for revenge, demands revenge, and yet they forget. You see, the grace of God is far different than man's natural inclinations to get even. And the grace of God is beautifully told in the story of Joseph, the Old Testament character of Joseph that we've been studying for the last few weeks. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and chapter 45. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one. Genesis chapter 45. Now we've been looking at the heroes of the faith as mentioned in Hebrews 11, and Joseph is mentioned there, and the story of Joseph's faith actually comes at the end of his life. And so we've been going back through the story of Joseph because it is so incredible to look at other illustrations of his faith. We saw that his faith was formed in a difficult, crazy family. He was the 11th uh, child with 12 boys. Actually, there was one sister thrown in there too, but 12 boys from four different mothers. And they had uh, an uncle who hated the, the father, Jacob, and wanted to kill him. Esau hated Jacob, and there was fear that there might be a horrible tragedy in their family as well. And in the midst of this situation, Joseph learned to believe in God and trust in God because later in his life, Jacob got things right as well. But because Joseph was the favorite son and given a coat of many colors, his brothers hated him. And when opportunity arose, sold him. And he was taken down into Egypt where for 13 years he suffered as a servant in Potiphar's mansion and then as a prisoner in Potiphar's jail. He had some dreams Understood that God was going to use him in an amazing way, but he had to wait. And so now faith that was formed in his early life is being tested in his late teen years and throughout his 20s. Faith in the fire. He realized, though, that prison has it, had its perks because it was in prison that the presence of God was with him. We read that in Genesis 39. The presence of God that might have been something of a theory of a theological proposition before, now became an ever-present reality. The Lord was with Joseph, and his faith grew. He interpreted a dream of one of the prisoners who happened to be Pharaoh's servant, and even though he was forgotten for a few years, when Pharaoh had a dream, the servant remembered Joseph in the prison. Joseph came and interpreted the dream, and Pharaoh was so impressed that we read in Genesis chapter 42 or Genesis chapter 41, that Joseph was made second in charge of all of Egypt, second to Pharaoh. This is chapter 41, verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh took off his signet ring and gave it to Joseph. He dressed him in robes of fine linen it's interesting, as you follow the life of Joseph, you can see the different stages of his life by following his clothing. Clothes don't make the man, but they tell a lot about the man. 
He had the coat of many colors, and then he wore the rags of a servant, and then he had a coat, a cloak that was taken by Mrs. Potiphar as we looked last week, and then he was in the jail, and now he's changed his clothes, and he's given the robe and the fine linen of royalty with a gold chain around his neck. That's a lot of bing for a guy like this. Second in command. And they escorted Joseph through a par- for a parade, verse 43, throughout the streets of Egypt. And people, I'm sure, were commanded to be at the parade. And they shouted, make way for the great Joseph. And I wonder how Mrs. Potiphar felt on that day. But there was no revenge. That, might, that in and of itself is astounding. We read in verse 46 that Joseph is now 30 years old, which means since he went into slavery at age 17, he's been suffering for 13 years. And the dream that Pharaoh had that Joseph interpreted was about seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt and then seven years of famine, right? And it was a dream about cows and grain, and the reason why there were two parts to the dream was just to show that the dream indeed would take place. Joseph interpreted it, Pharaoh makes him second in command. They go through the years of plenty and they storehouse all of the grain in the land of Egypt and now the years of famine come and there's, there are two years into the seven years. And we read in chapter 42, there's no grain in Canaan either. So Jacob sends his sons to go to Egypt to get grain. You can't make up a story as amazing as this. And we read in chapter 42, verse 6, that Joseph is the governor of the land, the one who sold the grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they had to bow down to him with their faces to the ground. Now, adding the years of plenty and two years of famine, Joseph is about 39, 40 years old. And they don't recognize him. He's speaking the Egyptian language through an interpreter to these Hebrews. He's matured and aged. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He's wearing his hair like an Egyptian, and he's dressed in royalty. You see, they hated Joseph. They sold him for a few pieces of silver and left him for dead and never thought they'd see him again. But I guess almost every day of their life, they would wake up saying, why in the world did we do that to Joseph? They couldn't forget their horrible deed. And now they were face to face. Joseph recognized his brothers, verse 7, but he never said anything to them. And In fact, he spoke harshly to them, and he tested them. It's kind of interesting. When Joseph was sent to see how his brothers were doing, that's when they sold him. They captured him and abused him, sold him to the Ishmaelites. He was going there to spy, that is, to bring a report back to his father. And what does Joseph accuse his brothers of doing in the land of Egypt? You're spies. (laughs) And he treated them harshly. It wasn't payback. He wanted to see if they had truly repented. And so this happened a couple, three times until finally, now we come to chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could no longer control himself. The brothers had already made a couple trips back. One brother was imprisoned. Simeon was held. And finally, Joseph is going to reveal himself. He said, have everyone go out of my presence. So there was no one in this space 
except Joseph when he made, his known, made himself known to his brothers, and he wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard about it. In verse 3 of chapter 45, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified. I guess so. All their worst nightmares coming to fruition. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And reluctantly they did so. And he said, see, look, I'm Joseph. Now he's speaking their own language without an interpreter. And notice what he says in verse 5. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. We're two years into the famine. The next five, there'll be no plowing and reaping. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times in the space of a few verses, this is God's doing. Now, when you look at the story of Joseph, I want to remind you that Joseph is what we would call a picture, an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ. In technical theological terms, you may not use the word type unless somewhere the Bible clearly says that the story is a type. But there's little difference between a picture and a type. I mean, the similarities are amazing. A.W. Pink, the Bible scholar from years gone by, has counted 101 similarities between Joseph and Jesus. Frankly, I think he stretched the point a little bit. Sometimes pastors get enamored with their points, and the more points you have, you know, the more impressive the sermon. If I came to you one Sunday and said, I have 101 points, hang on, that would be a long sermon. One pastor said, last week I had too many points. I had 10 points in my sermon. I want to assure you today my sermon will be pointless. (laughs) But there is a point to all of this. Think about it. Joseph was a favored son, right? Loved by his father, hated by his brothers, was sent to his brothers, rejected by his brothers, and left for dead, sold for pieces of silver. Was treated as a criminal in prison, and then rose to royalty, lord of the land, sovereign over all, and all of that so he could save the ones who punished him the ones who rejected him, the ones who hated him. You say, that sounds like Amish grace. No, it sounds like God's grace, divine grace. It's the gospel story. Let's look at it just quickly. First of all, notice that the brothers deserved punishment. Their deeds were wicked. They hated Joseph and wanted to kill him. And even though he pleaded that he would not be killed or mistreated, they still sold him. I think one of the most amazing things showing the callousness of the brothers is that they threw him in the cistern, and it says in Genesis 37, they sat down and had their meal. (laughs) 
And then when they went back to their father with a coat of many colors that they had dipped in blood to lie to their fathers about what happened to Joseph, they did not even care that the old man's heart was broken. They did not even care that they brought their dad to the point of grief and death. They still still sustained the lie. Here's the coat. We don't know what happened. You take a guess. Their wicked deeds deserved punishment. Yet instead of that, they received mercy. On one of their trips when they had come back and Joseph was treating them rather harshly, they actually said to one another, this is in chapter 42, verse 21, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen, and that is why this distress has come upon us. They felt the guilt because they were guilty. They deserved punishment. But what did they receive? Pardon. They received pardon. Joseph said to them, don't be distressed. Come close to me. Don't feel bad about what you did. Understand that God was in all of this to send me ahead of you so that I could deliver you, so that there would be a remnant saved from the horrible famine. Treated with severity, Joseph exchanges kindness. Now think about it. You and I are wicked. Oh, you're not as bad as you could be. And maybe you're not as bad as your neighbor, and maybe you're worse. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? We just heard from Isaiah chapter 53. It was our transgressions that pierced him. It was our iniquities that bruised him. It was our misdeeds that caused Christ to be punished In our place. In our place condemned he stood. Jesus did nothing wrong. Joseph did nothing wrong. Jesus suffered for our sins. The New Testament tells us the scripture is concluded. Everyone is under sin. So that everyone who believes could be saved. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we deserve to be punished, but pardon is granted to all of those who put their faith and trust in Christ. I love the way it's described in chapter 45. The brothers were terrified, but Joseph kisses them. And it's not the kiss of Judas. It's the kiss of mercy. I don't know what you've done, and I don't know your heart, but I know this. Your sin is not too great for God to forgive. Some of you think it is. That's why we have the illustration of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament who said, I am the chief of sinners, and if God can save the chief, the worst of all, it's the argument from the greatest to the lesser, he can save anyone else. A story like this, we read and say, I would never do that to my brothers. Well, if God can save them, if God can forgive them, if God can forgive sin like that, can he not forgive you? Absolutely. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, and he offers forgiveness. To those who crucified Christ, he said, Father, what's the rest of it? Forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. 
so he can forgive you. William Temple, the great preacher from the Anglican Church in England, once said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good, that's human. But to return good for evil, that's divine. That takes grace. And that's exactly what Joseph did for his brothers. And peace was received. The brothers accepted. They kissed Joseph. They're excited. They began to celebrate. (laughs) Except they've got to tell their father that Joseph's alive. And I think that somewhere in the story, because there appears to be now a glimmer of real repentance in these men, that they had to tell their father what happened. But peace is received. And for 17 years, Jacob lived in the land. 17 years. Which brings Joseph up to the age of 57. For 17 years, the brothers were blessed. In fact, we read about it here in chapter 45. Look at verse 11. Joseph says to the brothers, I'll provide for you. There's still another five years of famine. So bring everyone, all of your family, here to this land, and I will provide for you. And you notice in verse 21, he commanded that provisions be given to them for their journey, and he gave them clothing, and he gave them money, verse 22. Everything that they took away from Joseph or the things they used in abusing Joseph, Joseph gives to them. That is pure grace. And for 17 years, they live under the rich blessing that Joseph provides in the land of Goshen, which is greater Egypt. Until we get to chapter 50, and turn there just for a moment, because in chapter 50, what happens? Jacob has died. And the brothers say to themselves, Oh, no. What if Joseph was only being kind to us because our father was still alive? What if now that he is dead, Joseph is holding a grudge, verse 15, and pays us back? And so they make up a lie about something that Jacob supposedly wrote. Instructions, verse 16. And when Joseph saw them, he wept. He wept because they still didn't understand grace. They'd been living under the blessing for 17 years and still didn't understand mercy. And that's exactly like us. Saved by God's grace, living under his blessing, every provision we need given to us in Christ, and yet we're still fearful of judgment. What if Jesus rescinds his promise? And so now we have The promises reaffirmed. Joseph says, let me remind you, don't be afraid. You intended to harm me, verse 20, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So what I said before, let me say again, don't be afraid. Did you know one of the most common statements that Jesus made was, do not be afraid. So here's the gospel message. We're sinners and we deserve punishment, but Jesus dies in our place and offers us pardon. 
He says, if by simple faith you'll receive the gift of eternal life, you will be saved. And we accept the gift and we live in its blessing, but often we live in fear because we still think that the salvation has something to do with the way we live, that we earn it. Or at least we maintain it by being good. And if we're not good, we'll lose it. I want you to know, my friend, that the only way you get to heaven is by the mercy and grace of God and God alone. That salvation is his righteousness given to you and you cannot improve upon that one iota. And if you are truly saved, you'll learn to live under the blessing. You'll long to please God and bear fruit. But it's not the fruit that saves you. It's the fruit that gives evidence that you truly are saved. He reaffirms all the promises that were won by faith. So the big question is, how are we going to respond to the mercy and grace of God? Some of you here today are not saved. Even though Jesus died for you, You've never trusted him. You feel that maybe attending church and being a good person is simply enough. It is not. Some of you have trusted Christ as your Savior, but you live in fear because you don't understand that he has totally forgiven you. And he tells us in the book of Jeremiah and repeats it in the book of Hebrews, your sin and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. You say, can God forget? Yes, he can. He has chosen to forget your sin. You say, well, what if he rescinds his promise? Impossible. You have to trust the amazing grace of God. The incredible grace of God. And you accept salvation by faith. And by faith alone. But once received, you are transformed. Once accepted, you'll never be rejected. Once forgiven, always forgiven by the grace of Almighty God. It's Joseph's faith that we recognize. He believed God's word. He believed that God was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And he faithfully sought him. He understood God's plan and surrendered to it, even though it meant he would have to suffer by faith. And that's how you accept the gift of salvation, by faith. If you mean business, your life will prove it. But coming to Christ is an act of simple faith. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Years ago, there was a house fire. The family got out, but apparently one of the young boys in the upstairs bedroom couldn't get out. The father came to the window on the ground below with outstretched arms and said to his young son, jump, I'll catch you. Father knew that the only hope for this boy was to leap out of a window. But the boy was frightened. All he could see was smoke and flames and the blackness of night. He was afraid to leave. The father kept yelling, jump. The boy finally protested and said, dad, I can't see you. And the father said, but I can see you. And that's all that matters. 
Leaping into Christ for salvation is not a leap in the dark. You may not understand everything about salvation or all the intricacies of theology, but this much I know, and the Bible is true. He sees you, he loves you, and with open arms, he says, believe. And you'll never jump into the arms of Christ and be missed or rejected. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, during this communion service today, we have seen an illustration of your great mercy to us. The bread and the cup talk about how you suffered suffered with a broken body and how you shed your blood to atone for our sin. We didn't deserve it, but your incredible grace is offered to us. And we also see it in the story of Joseph forgiving his brothers. That's divine mercy. And so, Lord, I pray for two things this morning. First of all, for those who are here who have never trusted Christ, that they might realize that they are a sinner. And they're worthy of judgment, and without Christ they will perish. And may they come to Christ today by simple faith and accept his pardon and forgiveness. And secondly, Lord, for those who are Christians and begin to doubt whether God still loves them, whether his promises are still true, whether their sins are truly gone, may they be reminded of this wonderful story where Joseph said to his brothers years later, don't be afraid. I came ahead to save your life, not to condemn you. You are forgiven. May we live in the joy and the peace and the excitement of knowing our sins are gone by the grace of God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've never trusted Christ, let me urge you to come down to the front. We have people here who would love to talk with you and pray with you. Go in God's peace. You're dismissed.